0: Initially, the system was conceived as a kind of reaction to the existing uh, status quo. I really believe that what it means for, for financial services, what it means having this blockchain technology, and I believe that blockchain is something that should be considered as such an important innovation for how we're going to evolve our financial services.
1: I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespa.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of "You're Not Broke Your reach and host of The Wallet. Chances are, you've seen or heard the term cryptocurrency practically everywhere in recent months. But what exactly is it? What are its origins? And how does it work? Today, I speak to Ambro Soubiran, the CEO of Kaiko, a crypto market data company. Having first read about Bitcoin, back in 2013, Ambre was an early adopter and eventually left her banking career to follow her passion for blockchain technology. Often cited as one of the most influential women in crypto, Arm's company Kaiko has just raised $24 million in Series A funding. So today on the wallet, Ambre explains what exactly blockchain is, how it works, and busts some common myths around investing in crypto. Cryptocurrency has gained a lot of media interest, so we discuss how to ignore the hype to ensure you're investing for the long term, and what this technology means for the future of financial services. With the rise of crypto frauds and scams, we look at how to protect ourselves from fake platforms, as well as the challenges digital currencies face in light of their sometimes negative spotlight. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Also, if you're investing money, make sure it's for the long term and you understand what you're investing in. Remember, investing in crypto is risky.
0: Hi, Ambre. <laughs> Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. How are you? Very good. Listen, I'm uh, in London. It's been a while, uh, and I'm also in my favorite place in town, which is a uh, fully on Golden Square. So happy days.
1: Nice happy days. And you're usually based in in France. So we were we're actually chatting in France in French. That that's why we we just switch here. So you, I mean, people from the Vespot community know you because you attended our events. You spoke about crypto. We've been doing lots of things around crypto for a little while, but now there's all this excitement. <laughs> so I thought it would be nice to have you come again and talk about yeah, Bitcoin and, uh, and blockchain and, and sort of going back to basics. But maybe can I ask you first to introduce yourself for, for those who don't know you already?
0: Yes, of course. So my name is Ambre Soubiran. I'm French, as you rightly mentioned, but I, I used to live in London, actually. I stayed for about 10 years in London. Uh, As a background, I studied mathematics and I started working in investment banking. I was an equity derivative structure for HSBC. So I started in Paris and then I moved to London in 2010 and stayed uh, for quite some time. On the side, I became very passionate about uh, blockchain and and cryptocurrencies back in the early days in 2013. And I ended up leaving banking after eight years of uh, loyal services in order to run my own startup called Keiko. So
1: what is uh, what is Kaiko doing?
0: So Kaiko is a, a data company in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. So blockchain is a technology that uses tokens. Very often we hear about Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, or what we call cryptocurrencies. They are actually unit of accounts or tokens that are used to power blockchains. These have a price and a value, and they're actually traded all over the world on different marketplaces. What Kaiko does is that we are connected to all the marketplaces globally, and we gather all the trading data, so that means uh, a buy order, a sell order, and an executed transaction. And this is how you actually define the price of a crypto assets. So for example, if you ask me, what is the price of Bitcoin? In order to answer that properly, I'm going to look at the markets, and I'm going to look at what was the price at which the, the latest transactions were executed. This is how we, we do what's called price discovery. Um, So that's what we do. Uh, We gather all of this data around prices and we store it in a giant database. And then we expose this database to various uh, market participants that need this information for their activities.
1: So who are like some of your clients, I guess, institutional clients who are buying all your your data?
0: Absolutely. So uh, hedge funds, crypto funds, asset managers, custodians, uh, audit companies that are doing uh, valuation of crypto businesses. Um, exchanges. We also work with startups. For example, let's say you want to start a mobile app that shows the, the graph of the, of the Bitcoin price. For example, we can also provide all of the back-end data that enables people to build a um, customer facing application or website. So we really uh, only provide infrastructure around the price of crypto assets. And uh, this is used either by people who need to act on the market because they are actively trading or people that want to build uh, a product that implements basically a component of of price data.
1: So you, you started working for Kaiko leading Kaiko in 2014. So it's, I mean, this is like quite early and you were one of, you know, those who were interested in crypto very early on, even when you started working in banking. I remember you were talking, you were telling me you were talking about crypto all the time. You even wanted to set up maybe a crypto desk or something <laughs> in, in, in banking. So, I mean, where does that come from? How did you, you know, end up uh, yeah working in crypto?
0: So I was super, super lucky to really randomly run into um, what's called the Bitcoin white paper. Uh, it's actually relatively short and I really recommend anyone who wants to start um, learning about crypto to read that. The What's called a white paper is really, um, it's like a fundamental couple of pages that explain the base mechanics of uh, whatever it is. In this context, it's Bitcoin. And so, I, as I mentioned, I studied mathematics. I was working in finance. I was very interested in all the the different kind of innovations around money. And actually, not just money. I'm also interested in innovation around uh, health and uh, food. But whatever, for the purpose of this conversation, <laughs> okay. let's focus on innovation around money. And so I was looking at random blogs and, and I stumbled upon the white paper of Bitcoin, read it, and really I was incredibly incredibly lucky because I started Googling that. And a couple of weeks later, there was a Bitcoin meetup. I believe one of the first um, Bitcoin meetups in the UK that was happening on, on Bricklane in London a couple of weeks later. So I just registered and I, I went there really out of curiosity. Honestly, I didn't know what to expect. And there I, you know, it was in a, in a garage and a completely underground place. But there were so many people that came from all over the world and they were really passionate about what Bitcoin meant and what the technology meant. And and this new notion that you had created digital scarcity. For me, this is a very interesting way to think about Bitcoin is um, there has been a lot of research for creating a digital form of money. However, the problem that nobody could uh, solve was in a digital world, once I send something, I still own that thing, right? If I think about a photo, or if I think about a Word document or a PowerPoint, I can send it to you and I still have it. So the notion of scarcity in the digital world is very hard to solve for. And the way blockchain solved it is to create this chain of blocks where every block represents Um, a different moment in time and the latest block is a representation of what is the current uh, ownership and balances of all the different participants. So let's say we're doing a tiny blockchain with just you and me. The first block will say that Embray has one Bitcoin and Emily has zero. If I decide to send you my Bitcoin, it will create a new block where you have a Bitcoin and I don't. And thereby, I can't send it anymore and I don't own it anymore because there is a new register that shows that I don't have anymore the asset that I've sent. And this is completely new to the world of, of computer science, this notion that um, there is a a technology where you have subsequent block that are organized as a time series and the latest block is the true reflection of the balances of all the accounts globally. And this basically created digital scarcity, and this is fascinating because it's really about how you represent the ownership of an asset and how you transfer that asset in a completely decentralized way, right? It's a it's a peer to peer network. There's no centralized point of failure or nobody that can actually retroactively change any of the balances and any of the of the actual accounts within a blockchain. So that's how I got into it, and and it took me uh, actually two more years to to uh, to finally you know take the decision on on leaving banking in order to focus full-time on crypto. And I was indeed during those years trying to explain to HSBC that there's so much that could be done with blockchain and what it meant for the future of financial services at WIDE. I was not trying to pitch them the Bitcoin trading desk. I think that would have been pure <laughs> craziness at the time. But uh, even even the notion of, hey, guys, you should maybe just read a little bit about blockchain was already quite uh, quite uh, a challenge. But uh, But things moved in the right direction since. I mean, now you have all of the banks and all the leading institutions that are actively looking at crypto, actively looking at what blockchain means and what the technology fundamentally means for financial services.
1: And, uh, I mean, the world of crypto has changed a lot, obviously. I mean, since, you know, even you, like 2014 with with Kaiko, I'm sure it wasn't easy because also your activity is, you know, somehow based on, you know, demand of crypto, the interest in, like, you know, cryptocurrency and and, and the blockchain. Can you tell us a little bit more about your journey uh, over the past Seven years or something like
0: that. Absolutely. So it, it's been definitely a challenge, and and to be really uh, accurate, um, I'm not the original founder of Kaiko. So the Kaiko company was founded in 2014 by a brilliant entrepreneur called Pascal. He's currently the CEO of another blockchain yep. company called Ledger, and Pascal founded the company in 2014 with the same same idea and same product that what we're selling today. Right? There was no pivots along the way. However, back in 2014, there was literally no market or no addressable market for our product. Keiko is offering um, institutional grade or whatever enterprise grade quality market data. And this is only interesting for institutions, right? I mean, yeah. the best example is you or me. Uh, when I bought my first Bitcoin, I didn't need to acquire a database in order to run a backtesting <laughs> and decide if yes or no, you know, I would buy a Bitcoin. I just bought a Bitcoin. So crypto is a very retail space in the past. So, and there was just no addressable market. Kaiko is a, is a product that literally sells enterprise grades data to institutions. So in a very retail driven market where it's individuals purchasing uh, crypto. Those guys don't need to run a backtesting or acquire data before buying a Bitcoin. So it was very hard because we were building an enterprise product in a world where the industry didn't really have a, an enterprise or a B two B segment yet. So from 2014 to 2016, Pascal was leading the company and had invested quite significantly into the infrastructure and the team. And they really had—I mean—they had the only and the, the the best and only database of all crypto prices back then but there was nobody to buy it. So it was kind of early years that were a bit challenging. And honestly, I see how hard it is to be an entrepreneur in a world where you have a market to address. And I cannot imagine how hard it must have been uh, in the absence of an addressable market. (laughs) But anyway, I ended up uh, leaving in 2016 HSBC and I um, acquired a a controlling stake in the company from Pascal at that point. Pascal joined Ledger and I became the CEO of Kaiko. That was 2016. And we started kind of the company from scratch at that point, leveraging the historical database and leveraging the technology and the brand that they had built during the first years. And I was obviously much more lucky with timing because it was the early days of the ICOs. I don't know if you remember that. You had crazy token-based projects that were raising Uh, insane amounts of money directly on the blockchain using cryptocurrencies. And so at that point, this attracted so much money, even though it was still retail investors, it attracted the interest of some quantitative funds and some more Uh, You know, the emergence of a B2B market within crypto. So you had some funds that were trying to do arbitrage between exchanges. Um, As I mentioned, there are exchanges globally. So the price of Bitcoin on an American exchange is not necessarily the same that you have on a Korean exchange or a Japanese exchange or a European exchange, because all of these different marketplaces have their own market structure and their own investors. And so there's different prices. So you had some arbitrage funds that were starting. You had some quantitative funds. You had some people that were trying to create valuation models around the price of tokens and trying to apply more traditional equity-based models onto crypto assets. And thereby, we had the emergence of a B2B industry or a B2B segment within the crypto industry, and we started selling data organically. And that was really thanks to the emergence of those ICOs and those token trading strategies. And so it was still not banks, it was still not institutions that we are catering for today, but it was at least something that we could, uh, you know, um, live upon. So we started selling to these guys and grew the company. And then we raised our first round of funding, we raised $5 million in seed funding. That was 2018, 2019, two years ago, two and a half years ago. And we have just closed, it's going to be announced uh, tomorrow. So by the time the podcast is out, it will be public news, but um, but we're just closing now our Series A funding. Um, and we're super happy about that. And and definitely, you know, the, the first round of funding helped us build the company in a relatively narrow or shallow market. Uh, we were not profitable yet. Uh, however, we were making uh, a significant amount of money and we were on a very, very nice growth curve. And the funding has really enabled me to grow the team and build the product and build the product with Um, in mind that they were institutions would actually come to market. And this happened over the course of 2020. Now we have seen all of the leading banks, you know, changing their mind. JP Morgan, Citi, Goldman, BlackRock, they're all now announcing that they have a digital asset strategy. Digital asset is the soft word for cryptocurrency. <laughs> banks have been, you know, against crypto so long that now they can't really say, okay, we're having a crypto strategy. They all call it a digital asset, but it's exactly the same.
1: <laughs> no, that's amazing. Well done for the series. A. Um, you you know, it's been so cool like watching you and Kaiko and in the early days uh to where you yeah. are today so that's that's really awesome maybe we take a step back on you know bitcoin and why so many people still have such a negative image about cryptocurrencies, especially at the moment we've had, you know, like big conversation around, you know, the environmental impact of Bitcoin and people are like, you know, I think there's like pro cryptocurrencies and you see them on Twitter and they have their laser eyes and they're holding yeah. and, <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's also like this sort of like negative uh, also connotation from maybe the public, even from, you know, the, the government and stuff, because this is it, they see, the, they see as, yeah, maybe a a challenge for them. Uh, So where is that coming from?
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's many reasons why why crypto and and crypto in general, Bitcoin specifically, is, is criticized. On the other hand, they're all, you know, throwing themselves and their wallets at crypto. And on the other side, also criticizing it a lot. So there are a couple of reasons. One is definitely media is not helping, right? As soon as you have a Bitcoin price surge, they're all talking about a huge bubble that's going to pop. And as soon as it drops... Uh, it's not, you know, any other traditional asset class, they would be like, it's a healthy correction. And here it's always the death of crypto. So, so it's it's actually, you know, I think media is definitely not helping, but also to their, to their defense, initially Bitcoin was conceived as a kind of almost allergic reaction uh, after the subprime crisis. So it was definitely kind of the origins of the origins was definitely um, a, a way to suggest an alternative to the existing monetary um, in economic and political system around um, printing money and creating inflation and saving banks that, you know, although they were the ones who catalyzed their own problems with the subprimes and the CDOs and everything, well, in the end, the government started printing huge amount of money in order to save the banks from their own kind of, uh, you know, the troubles they created. So that was definitely the context in which blockchain emanated. It was a research to have an alternative system that could be used in order to offer to citizens around the world a way to transfer money in a decentralized, censorship resistant way. And this obviously doesn't, you know, uh, work with central banks and banks in general, and everybody that has a centralized authority over um, financial assets. So that's clearly something that I could understand why it would piss them off. On the other hand, I think, you know, challenge is good. And um, I, I like this comparison to French taxis. <laughs> um, I don't know how it was in the UK, but in France, honestly, we have seen over the past before Uber, I think we've seen a decrease in the quality of service of like the licensed taxis, for example. People were really like not having super clean cars. They were not very nice. They were not very pleasant. They were smoking in their cars, whatever. And then Uber arrived, everybody got pissed off and in the end, cabs are awesome now. <laughs> and so sometimes I feel yeah, it's true. And and I think you could probably say that of, of traditional hotel chains. You know, they were very expensive. Service was I'm not talking about super premium luxury hotels. I'm talking about your average Three star, whatever hotel. I think they were challenged by Airbnb and all these, these challengers to a, to a legacy, you know, system and status quo are in the end healthy. Competition is always healthy. I'm not saying crypto is directly competing with central banks, but in the, in the principle they are. And so that's one reason why like legacy institutions, I think, don't like crypto. On the other hand, uh, blockchain as a technology itself can be used by institutions in order to modernize and rethink the way their own IT and their own systems work. And that is an angle that I find fascinating. This is what really drove me to crypto. I'm not anti-banks. I'm not anti-governments at all. On the other hand, I think that... Uh, blockchain offers a technology that would enable those guys to do things better. And what we see now, I don't know if you've heard about what's called CBDCs, central banks, digital currencies, would be central banks actually using blockchain to issue fiat currencies, uh, euros, digital euros, digital yuan, digital dollars. And that is, you know, leading (laughs) central banks that are actually acknowledging the power of the technology itself and how they can use it themselves. So there's been a time where we could hear, you know, blockchain is great, but crypto is bad. And that's a narrative that really bugs me because there's no one without the other. And and, and the strength of the technology is there and is kind of blatant now. So I think things are changing. Initially, the system was conceived as a kind of reaction to the existing uh, status quo. However, challenging it also pushed those institutions to rethink in some way, the way they operate internally, and the way they do things, and the way they think about money and they think about ownership, and and I think that's for the better. When it comes to environments, I uh, I, I, I like to say something. It's not very consensual, but I think it's it's really true. Is yes, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy because this is due to how the the what's called the proof of work, the, the mining methodology works. Is, is a way that is incentive-based. So they ask people to basically spend energy on, in the form of electricity in order to get the right to participate in the network. Why? Because when people do that, they have skin in the game, right? It's a question of incentive. If, if I haven't spent money in the form of energy in order to participate to that network... What is my incentive to do things right? So the fact that I spend money means that I have skin in the game and that when I get a chance to say something about a block or a transaction or the validity of a block, basically I'm going to be incentivized to protect the system because I have skin in the game. I've spent money. So if I then destroy the system, how am I going to basically earn back the money? Because when you help the network, you get rewarded for that. And maybe
1: maybe on this, if you... Because people don't necessarily know how... So you've been talking about the blockchain and how in sort in of this like, you know, big... Uh, I mean, for me, it's, it's a little bit like a big like Google document that you're sharing with everyone. Everyone can see what we write. But you need people who are working on this network and you also need people who validate these transactions. And you're talking about like these people and the, and the mining. Uh, but, but practically, can you explain... You know, who are these miners? Like, what are these, you know, these computers and stuff? I think it would be, uh, I think this is fascinating, actually, uh, the mining process.
0: So, uh, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, everybody thinks it's super complicated, that actually it's not. Let's say, you know, I took the example of a blockchain with just the two of us earlier today. Let's do one where we have a third participant who happens to be a miner. Let's call that person whatever John Doe. So John is a miner, and we have a small blockchain between Emily and Ambre. So block zero, Ambre has a Bitcoin, and Emily doesn't have any. I'm going to send you my Bitcoin. In order to do that, I'm going to basically broadcast. I'm going to say there is a network. It's a peer-to-peer network. In this network, there's just the three of us. I'm going to say Ambre is going to send one Bitcoin to Emily our friend John, who is a miner, is going to hear that transaction and he's going to say, okay, I've heard that Embrace is sending a Bitcoin to Emily. It's a very simplified blockchain. So let's say that's the only transaction. And what he's going to do is he's going to be mining. What we call mining in the Bitcoin protocol is literally spending electricity in order to solve a complicated uh, mathematical equation. And once he solved that equation, he gets the right to create a new block. The reason you have to solve that equation in order to have the right to create a block is this notion of skin in the game, right? Because then once he has spent money, let's say he spent 0.5 Bitcoin in energy in order to, to solve that equation, he's going to say, okay, I solved the equation, I'm going to create a new block. And then he's going to look at his transactions, in this case, embry has sent a bitcoin to emily and he's going to then create a new block that reflects that transaction so he's going to create a new block that says embry has 0 bitcoin and emily has 1 bitcoin and then he's going to propose that block to the network here it's just the three of us we're going to look at the block and we're going to validate that block for for his work he's going to be remunerated in a new Bitcoin. So in the new block, there will be Emily has one Bitcoin, Embraer has zero Bitcoin, and John has been rewarded one newly minted Bitcoin for his work of creating that block. So basically, he spent 0.5 Bitcoin in energy for the right to potentially win one Bitcoin. That is because he's done things properly, right? If he had tried to, to lie, let's say his block would have said Embry has zero Bitcoin, Emily has one Bitcoin, and John has 10 Bitcoin. And if he had submitted that block to the network, We would have looked at the block and we would have said, no, this is not a valid block where, you know, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say uh, gross words or if we're going to put bits. (laughs) But basically, we would see the we would see the block and we'd be like, what the F, you know, is is those 10 bitcoins like this is not a valid block. And so we would refuse that block. Thereby, John would have spent 0.5 Bitcoin in energy, but he wouldn't get the mining reward for creating a healthy block. So this notion of spending money for the right to create a block is this notion of skin in the game. And once you get the right to create a block, you are incentivized to create a valid block. Because if you don't, you basically just lose the money you spent, right? You don't recoup your investment with the mining reward that you get for a valid block. And so that's how it works. And then there's going to be a new transaction. Let's say John actually wants to send his newly Bitcoin mined um, to Embry, and so he's going to issue another transaction. The mining thing will start again. Here, there's only one miner in my very basic example, but... Let's say that you could have ten miners, and basically they would all race for solving that mathematical equation. Thereby, they would all be spending energy, and the first one to solve it will get the right to create a block, and then it starts all over again. So this is how this is how mining works, and this is why basically it's energy consumption. It's really about those notion of skin in the game incentive. And, and this no, the other notion that's very strong is the notion of consensus. So whenever you submit a block, there is there has to be a consensus. Everybody has to agree that this is a valid block. And once they do, you get paid. This is the way Bitcoin works. However, Ethereum, who is the second largest blockchain, is already migrating to a different mining algorithm called proof of stake. The, the the notion is to have exactly the same kind of economic principles, which is I'm going to lose money if I create invalid blocks, but it's done in a different way. So on proof of stake, instead of doing proof of work, proof of work is what Bitcoin uses. It means I need to prove that I have Worked and worked is basically spending energy. In proof of stake, you need to show that you have something at stake. Meaning, for example, if we get back to our small example where it's just you, me, and John, and John is a miner, John would have to put 0.5 Bitcoin on the table. And he would say, if I do an invalid block, I lose what I've put on the table. And if I do create a valid block, I get my mining reward. And so It's just a different way of proving that you have skin in the game. uh, And it's a way that is far less energy consumption. Um, So Ethereum is migrating on that. Bitcoin isn't for many different reasons. And that's one thing just to explain where the energy consumption comes from. Now, the other really important information is is about transparency of how much it consumes. If you look in any blockchain, Bitcoin explorer, Bitcoin blockchain explorer, at every block, you know exactly, and like what I'm saying precisely, it's at every like gigahertz or gigawatt or I don't know how energy is is calculated, you know exactly how much energy was used in the calculation of every single block. So Bitcoin is actually the first monetary system or financial system where you actually know exactly how much it consumes. And honestly, like, I'm not saying it consumes more or less or whatever. I don't know how you can compare it to a country. I know there's things like, oh, Bitcoin uses more energy than Uganda or whatever. Like... I don't, I don't know actually if it consumes more or less than Goldman Sachs. And the truth is, at least for Bitcoin, we know exactly how much it consumes. For everybody else, we have no clue, right? And I'm, I'm talking about an entire financial system. So Bitcoin is a self-sustainable database that maintains I don't know how many millions of, of accounts and, and, and payment systems and everything and it's it's entire like there's nobody you don't have executives taking airplanes traveling with bitcoin you don't have buildings that are up at light. yeah you don't get branches you don't get buildings that are entirely lit up at night just because it's nice to you know to have your building up at nights in canary wharf like all these things honestly i'm not criticizing i'm just saying in order to criticize i would be curious to see what is the energy consumption of any bank out there any government out there any financial system i mean the contactless card i don't know how much it consumes to be able to pay in seconds instead of three seconds, it's a convenience thing. So it's like all these things, when I get slightly upset, like we do recognize that Bitcoin is energy consumptive, is that a word? However, I would like to have comparables. And I don't think there is a single financial system out there that can tell us how much they consume and how we can compare it. So sometimes it, it's, it's easy to point fingers when you don't have your own accounts clean, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's one thing I would say in favor of Bitcoin is it's maybe bad, but at least it's transparent.
1: Yeah, and actually, I was reading a research by ARK uh, Investment Management, and they found that the Bitcoin ecosystem consume less than 10% of the energy required for the traditional banking system. So we're seeing, I mean, ARK is a massive supporter of <laughs> of, of Bitcoin, yeah. uh, but, you know, I, I think there's going to be more and more research around that on electricity consumption.
0: Yeah, yeah. and honestly, we're not yet at the scale of, you know, Bitcoin could not handle the global financial system at all, right? I mean, you know, we can't compare Bitcoin to Visa. We're not there yet at all. However, you know, I would like to compare apples to apples and say, okay, you know, for that, I mean, how can you put a price on a entirely censorship resistant decentralized financial system where people can literally you know have ownership of assets that is completely transparent and auditable in time you know exactly where they got their um, their value from where those bitcoins went before like it's an incredible tool actually it's it's something that is so strong and so key i mean do we put a price on lightning street at night like you know there's i really believe that. What it means for for financial services what it means having this blockchain technology it's hard to put I mean how much do we you know do we put a price on space exploration honestly like it's key we think that it's about survival and exploration and science and understanding of the world and and I believe that blockchain is something that should be considered as such an important innovation for how we're going to evolve our financial services that it shouldn't be something you necessarily just put a price on like that right
1: yeah. So now I'd like to talk about crypto as an investment, because obviously at VestPod, we're talking about investing money, investing for the long term. But sometimes, I mean, especially like new investors over the past year, people have been saving money uh, in the US. They even got their checks. And what they've been doing is, you know, going for high risk trading, single stocks, social apps, you know, a l- lot of options, trading and crypto so how do we look at cryptos as an investment how do we you know understand and understand that it's for for the long term just just to take an example when we organized an event with you in london around crypto in july 2018 the price of bitcoin was eight thousand dollars and we're recording this episode now and it's slightly below 40k so you know, it's been like a roller coaster with uh, with Bitcoin. So, how does anyone just ignore the noise and and you know only invest in what they they understand?
0: So, uh, I mean, it's a it's a great question and one that you know I, I'm so used of having dinners with friends who're like, "Do you still do you think it's still time?" Because obviously, so there are a couple of key informations. First one is. One Bitcoin is indeed about 40k. However, it doesn't you don't have to buy an entire Bitcoin. So you could literally invest 10 euro or or sorry, 10 pounds or 50 pounds in Bitcoin. You don't need to buy an entire Bitcoin. Bitcoin is divisible up to the billionth. So that's not that shouldn't be something where you're like, oh, Bitcoin is too expensive, like you don't need to buy an entire one. And I think this is one myth <clears throat> that sometimes people have this notion that, you know, think a Bitcoin is too expensive, and they compare it to other smaller cryptocurrencies um, that are worth literally nothing. But there's this... Uh, bias of the unit of account. You know, the fact that one Ripple is cheaper, so thereby there's more upside. Yeah. So I think this is the first myth that should be debunked is like, don't look at the price of a crypto token uh, because it doesn't, you know, you, I could start my Ember coin tomorrow and list it at 0. 0.0001 just to, you know, get people to buy it. And so if it's worth 0.01, I've done times a thousand and it still looks cheap, right? So this is like the first scam <laughs> is don't don't look, don't, don't get fooled by the bias of the value of a unit. That's thing number one. Second, look at supply. I mean, supply is the, that's why things are cheaper, right? If you have For exactly the same market value, let's say of 1,000, if you have 1,000 shares, well, one share is going to be 1 euro. If you have 10,000 shares, yeah, okay, your share is going to be worth one cent, but actually the value, (laughs) the intrinsic value of what you're buying is going to be exactly the same. So that's really like the biais d'unité. Unity, I don't know, I'm not sure how to say that in in English, is is really one mistake that people shouldn't get fooled by. I personally have a a portfolio that is 50-50 Bitcoin and Ethereum there are other kind of Ethereum killers that are starting. There's Solana, there's plenty of other blockchains. Uh, I personally don't know well enough to kind of give any kind of investment advice on anything else. However, I do believe in a lot in Bitcoin and Ethereum for two reasons. Bitcoin is a narrative that is very simple, right? It's the store of value digital gold narrative. This is on that basis that most institutions are investing in the in, in the in the space in the assets, and it's really because it's it's a it's a very basic blockchain. You can buy and you can send and you can receive, and that's pretty much all you can do with Bitcoin. So you can buy it and store it and keep it, and it's going to be kind of a hedge against inflation if you want to think about it like that. It's like a s- safe haven or store of value. That's the Bitcoin narrative. The Ethereum narrative, on the other hand, is completely different. It's you're investing in internet in some way. Internet as a platform that enables businesses to be built upon. So Ethereum is a, is a giant blockchain platform on which projects can build their own blockchains. So a lot of the tokens and a lot of the blockchains you hear about are actually blockchains that are built Within the Ethereum ecosystem, and and that is something sometimes people don't know is you know we hadn't. There was no way to invest in Internet in the past. You could only invest in Internet companies. Well, here with Ethereum, you can invest on Ethereum companies, but you can also invest directly in Ethereum, which is literally the infrastructure that is powering all of those blockchain applications. So that is an entirely different narrative. It's a bit of a more difficult one to understand because that requires understanding more of what blockchain means. Whereas Bitcoin, you know, you can just think, literally you can compare it to digital gold. And so those are my personal recommendations is like start small, don't get fooled by the crypto is, you know, 40K, 60K. you know, like it's always too expensive. It was already too expensive when it was 500 euros like six years ago. So don't get fooled by that. Don't think you need to buy an entire Bitcoin. You can put 50 euros in Bitcoin, 50 euro in Ethereum. And for me, as soon as you have even a small investment in any of those, you're going to be triggered to read articles when you see them. It's basically, you know, I, I met so many people that are like, oh, I really want to understand blockchain before I invest. I, I'm like, just, you know what? Put 50 euros, like very often I'm having dinner with friends and I'm like, listen, I'll pay for dinner, but just buy 50 euros of Bitcoin, which would have been the cost of this dinner tonight. Because once you have, it's this notion of skin in the game. As soon as you have the asset, you're going to pay more attention, you're going to actually be far less lazy and like not procrastinate of learning about it to next month. Because very likely, you're going to look at your wallet every day, you're going to see it growing, dropping, increasing, and it's going to trigger you to try to understand. And that's, for me, the best learning experience is just to kind of start investing really small. Uh, and I would just start with Bitcoin and Ethereum, because for me, they're clearly the two um, most kind of uh, um, understandable use cases and the most bigger stable within within the crypto ecosystem stable blockchains so recently we've
1: seen a a rise in the number of people being scammed around crypto i think that's a big worry scammers are getting really good uh, and what they're usually trying to do is make you transfer your cryptos because it's not like doing a bank transfer where your bank would call you and would say hey listen the money has been to this account you know this person when you transfer a bitcoin to someone then I guess, like, forget about it. So how do we invest in, like, a safe way? Uh, and I guess if you start small, you start with 50 pounds. Yeah. How, you know, what are the platforms? How can we do it? And how can we recognize, like, these these scams? These
0: so, I mean, there's two ways to, quote-unquote, invest in crypto. One of them is to invest in through a synthetic exposure. For example, you can buy crypto on Revolut. You can easily, do, directly within the app, just kind of buy crypto. I just want to be really... Um, like express that this is probably the safest way, as in it's hard to lose your crypto because actually you don't own them, right? They're owned by Revolut. And you can't really withdraw your Bitcoin from the Revolut app. Actually, what they'll do is they'll give you the price of the assets at the moment you want to withdraw. It's like more of a tracker or an index. It gives you a synthetic exposure to the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever crypto you've bought. So this is kind of, I guess, the easiest way because it's very intuitive. It's like buying any other currency on your mobile app. However, you don't own your crypto in the blockchain sense. When you own your crypto, it means that you have a private password that is yours and that enables you to interact directly with the blockchain. And so if you actually want to really own your Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, the best way to do it, in my view, is to uh, purchase a ledger hardware wallet. And then you have an application through which you can acquire crypto. Here, what's going to happen when you set up your ledger is it's going to give you a list of 24 words. It's called your basically your, your passphrase. Those words are what you have to hide at any cost and never give to anyone. But this is your password that enables you to own your Bitcoin and transfer it whenever you want to whoever you want through the blockchain. So here you have your, let's call it your physical Bitcoin. If we I know it's not physical, it's still all digital. But as opposed to synthetic, if you buy a Bitcoin through Revolut or IG Trading or any kind of, of application that is going to give you a synthetic exposure to the price, This is a relatively easy way to do that, but you have to trust the counterparty, which is in this case Revolut or whoever, to deliver the day you want to get your money back. If you want to really own your Bitcoin, you have to store it securely on a private key. And in order to do that, there are plenty of tools. I mean, you can Google hardware wallets uh, and there's plenty of different ones, Uh, but it's really about owning your Bitcoin and you don't own your Bitcoin until you have a private key and a public key. It's literally the same concept as email. If I, if I, you can give me your email, right, where I can send you emails. It's the same with a Bitcoin wallet. You can give me your public address to which I can send Bitcoin. But if, if I want to hack you, I need your password that enables me to send money from your account, exactly like if I had your email password, I could connect to your email and send emails from your account without you knowing. And so this is how people get hacked. It's either because they are lured in giving their passwords or their private keys. And when once someone has your private key, uh, he can basically just connect to your wallet and send money to whoever he wants. And because it's crypto and because it's blockchain, there's no intermediary, it's decentralized. So there's no central entity you can go to and complain. That doesn't happen. It's kind of, you know, responsibility versus centralization. It's either you trust someone to be in charge, like we do with banks today, Or you trust yourself to be in charge, which has its own kind of consequences in terms of if you fuck up, there's no backup.
1: Yeah. And wh- can you give me some examples of, uh, you know, platforms where you can buy crypto or, you know, you can do that on,
0: you know, Coinbase, Binance. Yeah. Coinbase, Kraken, Binance. Uh, but all of these, like you basically, I mean, I, I, I use Kraken personally. I do a bank transfer to Kraken and then I on, on the exchange directly, I place, a, I place an order to acquire crypto and, I, uh, and I, I end up with my account with a crypto on my account and then I withdraw that crypto. To, uh, to my Ledger uh, wallet. Yeah. And this is my kind of secure wallet. And here really the people that get hacked is because they get lured into sharing their password. And once, yeah. this is the one thing you should never, never share is your private key. It's called a private key. And there's a saying in crypto which is not your key, not your coins. Like you actually, if you don't have your private key, you don't actually have your crypto. And with ledger, you or whatever ledger equivalent hardware wallet, you have your private key and this you should never give it. I mean there's horrible scams, honestly, it there's people that are you know impersonating ledger, calling calling ledger users and saying, hey, we are ledger support. We would like to uh, let you know that we're going to help you secure your account and move it to a different ledger. We're going to ship it to you um let you know and they're basically impersonating the company and 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 luring people into sharing this private key which is the one thing you should never ever do
1: yeah there's also like advisors like sort of fake advisors they have their website and they help you you know buy on this on this on this famous platform and what they do is once your money is on this platform they give you their key and and they ask you to transfer their beacon onto their trading platform so be super careful and make sure you understand how these platforms work One last question on on investing in crypto now is, you know, the the taxes side of things. We haven't been thinking about that in the early days. But now, you know, when you invest in the stock market, you make a profit or and then you have to pay taxes or ideally you invest through a pension, through an ISA.
0: But what about cryptos? (laughs) So I honestly have no clue how it works in the UK. I would be terribly well, like badly positioned to give any advice. All I know in France, I mean, first of all, like crypto is not illegal as long as you declare it like any other asset. Like honestly, if you don't, if you invest in stocks and you make capital gains and you don't declare them, you're not in the, it's exactly the same with crypto or with any other kind of asset, I guess. So as long as you are clean with your tax authority, then there's no problem. Uh, That's number one. And second, I know in France, it's considered like there's a flat tax of, I think, 30% on capital gains and you have to give them basically a proof of at what price you purchased it, at what price you sold it, and they calculate the capital gain and you get get, um, taxed on that basis. Uh, I I assume there's a similar... um, uh, similar kind of uh, setup in the UK, but I honestly don't know exactly how taxes work here.
1: Okay, I have three quick fire questions.
0: What's the best financial decision you've ever made? Honestly, uh, crypto back in 2014. Full disclosure, by the way, I bought really cheap. I bought it like something like 200 pounds or something, and I sold almost like a large large majority um when it hit 500 because i was coming from the traditional financial world i had done, done like 100 percent returns and Ooh. i was like what <laughs> this is gonna crash it looked like the chart looked like a bubble back then it was like it tipped at 500 and i was like wow i did times two and i sold almost everything and now looking back i'm, I'm thinking maybe i wouldn't be working today if i hadn't <laughs> <laughs> but uh, unfortunately i did and uh, learned a lot in the process but uh, but yeah so so this definitely acquiring crypto. And you know what? It wasn't a huge amount of money. I mean, it was a couple thousand bucks back then. Uh, but it really gave me the desire to understand. I remember my frustration when I was trying to say, yeah, I invested in Bitcoin and everybody would look at me with wide eyes, you know, and basically to in order to explain how, how how a savvy investor you were, you had to understand it. and And by having skin in the game, it forced me to learn. And I'm so happy I did because I just love the blockchain space today.
1: And the worst financial decision you've ever made?
0: Probably a pair of heels just before COVID or something. (laughs) And what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? Uh, So I I just got a a daughter uh, in December last year. So I'm definitely spending fortunes on help for her and like I, I you can't think You, I, I don't think I had any idea how much a, such a tiny thing could take up both in terms of finance and in terms of space and in terms of everything. And time. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's also the most beautiful thing in the world. But uh, yeah, definitely the most uh, financially consumptive thing in my life right now.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to add or to share with uh, with anyone listening to this episode?
0: No, I mean, thanks so much for inviting me. And, uh, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a huge uh, believer in, in what you're doing. And, and I think, honestly uh if i just could summarize it i would say like ladies just invest 50 pounds you'll you'll not regret it like worst case you'll lose them which can happen it's part of the risk but you'll learn so much in the process of losing it and even understanding how you lost them if you get hacked well you won't get hacked ever again hopefully you know next time it's going to be a a more important amount of money and you'll be ready and you're not going to be uh hacked or you're going to have learned a few tricks. So I would start small, I would definitely not invest anything that I'm not willing to lose. But I don't think there's any downside in, in really like starting small and, and trying to play around with crypto, I would definitely get a hardware wallet and own my crypto rather than buying it through Revolut. But buying it through Revolut can be done instantly. And at least it will give you the financial exposure and it will trigger you hopefully to learn more and do more.
1: Ambre, merci, merci, merci beaucoup. Uh, fascinating. I just love this space. So hopefully we'll we'll organize more events as soon as we can. I'm sure we're going to have so many questions from this episode. So now you can uh, find Ambre Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ambre Soub, uh, that's going to be in the show notes. And of course, check out Kaiko. That won't be directly for you. But there's also lots of research and reports and stuff. So lots to learn about crypto. Ambre, thank you so much. And um, see you soon. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Wallet. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please do share with a friend or on social media. It also takes two minutes to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcast. And this does really help. Thank you and chat to you next week.